everybody. I'm your host, Cole Morganti, and you're listening to the Came Unto Christ podcast. We talk about Jesus, Joseph Smith, and everything concerning Mormonism and Christianity. We don't think they're the same, but we want to bring the true gospel of grace to Latter-day Saints. No matter your faith background, thank you for listening to today's episode, and I hope you learned something. But cozy up as we talk about the most important things in life, and I leave you with this, John 5, 24. Truly, truly, I say to you, whoever hears my word and believes him who sent me has eternal life. He does not come into judgment, but has passed from death to life. Thanks for listening. What is going on, everybody? Welcome back to the Came Unto Christ podcast. I'm your host, Cole Morganti, and today is a very special episode because we have a very special guest, and that is Bill McKeever from Mormonism Research Ministry. Bill McKeever founded Mormonism Research Ministry in 1979 with the hope of informing the body of Christ about the differences between Mormonism and Christianity. He is also an author. His writings include, in their own words, a collection of Mormon quotations, answering Mormon questions, ready responses for inquiring Latter-day Saints, that's co-authored with Eric Johnson, who is also part of Mormonism Research Ministry, who we've had on the podcast earlier, and Mormonism 101, explaining or examining the religion of the Latter-day Saints. And today, Bill will be talking to us about the gold plates and the story of Joseph Smith. But before we get into that, let's hear from Bill. Bill, how are you doing? I'm doing great, Cole. Good to be with you. That's awesome. And so, uh, Bill, right before we get into the story, I kind of gave you a tiny bit of an intro there, but tell us a little mo- bit more about yourself. You know, um, uh, you live in Utah. You, you've been around the culture of Latter-day Saints. Just tell us a little bit about yourself. Yeah, sure. I I began studying Mormonism right after I became a Christian in the mid-1970s. Yeah, I, I was never a Latter-day Saint, which always kind of, it kind of throws a lot of Mormons off when I tell them that because they all think, obviously that I must be some bitter, bitter ex-Mormon who's just trying to get back at the church. And that's really mm-hmm. not my story at all. I grew up with a lot of Latter-day Saints. They never really tried to convert me, though I did have a lot of them in my classes in school. I, I knew who they were, didn't really know what all they believed. Um, but when I became a Christian in the mid-70s, I all of a sudden had a lot of my LDS acquaintances that I had at that time uh, started sharing with me what they believed to be true. And of course, being a new believer, uh, there were a lot of areas I probably wasn't all that sure about myself. But as I conversed with some of my friends, uh, I really think it was the Holy Spirit just checking me on a lot of these things because you would hear something and and I would go, well, where are you getting that? You know, because I don't recall is that in the Bible? And they, they go, oh, no, no, it's in this other source. And they rattle off some kind of title, usually the Book of Mormon, Doctrine and Covenants or something like that. And because these were my friends, I, I had a genuine concern for them. And the more they would talk to me, the more concerned I became. And so I started looking into this on my own. I, I I remember, I think the first book I ever bought on this subject was a little tiny paperback titled Are Mormons Christian? And it was written by a man who was a Christian missionary on an Indian reservation. His name was Gordon Frazier. And 
Gordon Frazier wrote this book basically outlining some of the main doctrines of Mormonism as opposed to the doctrines of Christianity. And mm -hmm. I really wanted the book for his bibliography. I wanted to know what is he citing? Where is he getting his information? Because I, I've always been very interested in primary sources. And I've, I've come to realize, too, when you're sharing your faith with people and they already come to the table with a, a bunch of preconceived ideas, that that uh, the you have to go with the primary sources because they respect them. And so I've mm -hmm. always done that ever since I got involved in ministry. And but the like I say, the more I started studying this, the more concerned I became. And that really was the genesis of my looking into Mormonism. What happened was I was living in Southern California at the time. And uh, naturally, a lot of Christians were running into Latter-day Saints. And they would call me up and ask if I could come over when the missionaries came over to their house doing the proverbial setups. I don't do that anymore, but I, I sure learned a lot by doing that because it gave me an opportunity to engage with a lot of these missionaries. And though I have a lot of respect for anyone in their church that would give two years of their life to go out and tell others what they think is true, I, I came to realize that there's a wide variety of missionaries out there. I came across some who seem to have a pretty good handle of what their church taught and what they were supposed to believe. And naturally, I also came across a lot of missionaries that didn't know a whole lot about their faith at all. But still, it was a good experience for me to engage these people and to learn how to talk to them. At this time, I was being mentored by a couple who had started a Christian ministry called Utah Christian Tract Society. They started mm. this probably around the time I was born in the 1950s. And ironically enough, Edna Budvarson, she was born in Manti, Utah, which is where we've done a lot of ministry. And yeah. when they had the Mormon miracle pageant, uh, sadly, that's not any anymore. But they taught me a lot because being former Mormons, they could share with me some things about Mormon people that I would not have known or something that I would have to learn and probably learn very slowly. So I was really educated by their experience and learned a lot from them. They kind of took me under my wing. And then uh, after a while, uh, Art had asked me if I was interested in taking over their ministry. And I, I just felt intimidated at that time. But finally, uh, the day came where I kind of felt like I did want to move in this direction, felt God was calling me to be a missionary to the LDS people. And when I when Art asked me again, I said, you know, I, I think I probably would. Well, it was kind of funny because they weren't really ready to, to retire and give it up at that point. So I told Art, I says, well, you know, I'm really thinking of starting something anyway. So he helped me get Mormonism research ministry started, helped me with the corporation papers and things like that. I mean, he, both of them were just a blessing to my wife and I, they became very good friends. And then Art passed away uh, and Edna gave the ministry over to me anyway. Eventually we did merge the two ministries and then Edna passed away as well. But I learned so much from them and I, I'm really indebted to them for helping me out in trying to understand the Latter-day Saint from their worldview. And, and I think it helps me when I'm trying to share my faith with them because I kind of know where they're coming from. And of course, after doing this for four decades plus, I, I hope I've learned something about dealing with the LDS mm -hmm. people.
Yeah. Uh, and, and that's really how I, I got started in it. I, we put out a, a newsletter mainly to just some close friends and family. I, I often say I, I married an Italian and her family came with a lot of family. And so, <laughs> uh, you know, we were mailing it out to a, a lot of friends and family like that. And it kind of evolved from there. Now we put out a four-page newsletter called Mormonism Researched. We've always kept it free. Um, fortunately, uh, we can send it out as a PDF if people want it that way or a hard copy, either way. Uh, but uh, it's it's been a blessing. I, I, I really thank God for all the things that I've learned. I thank him also for a lot of the results that we've seen. And certainly I don't think it's by any eloquent arguments that I come up with. It's cer certainly it's always the Holy Spirit that convicts anybody and converts anybody. But still, I think we are responsible as Christians to come up with the best arguments we possibly can and hopefully do it in a way that honors Christ. And that's always been one of the goals that I have had ever since I got involved in this back in 1979 in a more official capacity, if you will. Yeah, no, that's great. We definitely share uh, a love for evangelism and a love for spreading the truth uh, to the Latter-day Saint people. And even how you mentioned with primary sources, I mean, it's so important to just show that you're not grabbing these ideas when you critique the Latter-day Saint Church or critique its practices, that you're not grabbing this out of thin air, but rather you're just showing someone that that their authorities have taught something maybe they haven't seen in the past. And so, right. you know, we both know Aaron Marshall, uh, the regional director uh -huh. for Rosho Christi yep. here. And, and I, I love what he says when he introduces you, where he says, this is Bill McKeever. And he probably has forgotten more about Mormonism than we will ever know. And that's kind Aaron of, that's, is too kind. He's too kind. <laughs> yeah. And, and so I'm just so excited just to hear you um, kind of just show your, you know, talk about your findings that you've made throughout the years, especially when it comes to the gold plates story and Joseph Smith. Because yeah, uh, the, this, the gold, oh, no, yeah, go. It's kind of the gold plates thing is kind of been a shtick with me if you will and, and it kind of goes back to to the mormon miracle pageant that i was talking about earlier yeah yeah tell, uh, talk about that well well i was talking with sander tanner and i had this this brainiac idea and i asked her if i could take the lead plates that she had for years on display in her bookstore which sadly is closed now mm -hmm. uh but I asked Sandra, could, could I bring those plates down to the pageant and just challenge Latter-day Saints to lift those plates? Uh, because I don't think a lot of Latter-day Saints really realize if Joseph Smith's story is true, it certainly cannot be repeated. And you can't throw a miracle into the mix because Joseph Smith never claimed there was a miracle that he needed to carry the plates or for anybody else to lift the plates. So I thought, well, let's just do a little bit of an illustrated sermon down there on the streets of Manti. And I remember taking them down and, and I mean, cool, you've listened, you've lifted those plates. They're, mm -hmm. they're 118 pounds, which doesn't sound like an awful lot. But when you take 118 pounds and put it in a little small space that Joseph Smith claimed were six inches by eight inches by six inches deep, that 118 pounds is very, very heavy. Hmm. In fact, 
when people would go into the bookstore, because I, I volunteered there for years, uh, mm-hmm. I volunteered on Saturday, and then Eric also, my associate, uh, was volunteering on Saturdays as well. We'd trade off. We would have people come in and uh, sometimes just to lift those plates because they had heard about them, but others just coming in the store, just wanting to talk, they would lift the plates and they would go to lift them. And of course, we make it easy for them because they're on a wooden stand. And so you can put your fingers under it. Can you yep. imagine if you didn't have the wooden stand? Yeah, you couldn't exactly. lift them. I'm, I'll guarantee it. You couldn't lift them. And usually the first words out of a person's mouth after they tried to lift them would be, are they bolted down? Because they mm. don't budge. And I would usually go over and show them, oh, yeah, they, they come up. And I would kind of lift them up just to let them see that they weren't bolted down. And then they would try it again, you know, kind of straighten their back and use their legs and such. And eventually get them off, off the little platform that they were uh, secured to. But most people never realize that they would be this heavy. And then when I tell them, of course, lead is lighter than gold. And if these plates were in fact gold and gold given to be 1200 pounds per cubic foot, and this being, you know, two thirds of a cubic, no, one sixth of a cubic foot, the plates would have normally weighed 200 pounds if they Mm. were gold. Wow. And what, in other words, what you would have to do is add about another 80 pounds on top of the lead plates that you just could not lift. Mm-hmm. Now you know it's impossible. Mm-hmm. And yet, according to Joseph Smith, he tucks these plates under his arm. He heads for home three miles away, jumping over logs, fighting off armed attackers, running at the top of his speed. I yeah. mean, the story gets ridiculous. And I'm, I'm mainly, uh, I, I wanted to do that with the plates just to show why it's difficult for me as a non-member to believe this story. Mm-hmm. So often... What, what I would do, and I started back there when I took Sanders plates down there, is I would challenge Latter-day Saints to convince me as to why I should believe this story. Now, I only use Sanders plates one time. For one, Cole, they're, they're just too stinking heavy. Getting those out of the back of my truck was just oh. too mm-hmm. hard. And so I ended up getting some sheet metal plates made ironically from the sheet metal company that's right behind where sandra's bookstore was located they made me a set of gold plates uh, and i put them on a wooden stand just like sandra's but mine being sheet metal were only 80 pounds and a lot lighter than sandra's you would think almost 40 pounds lighter you'd be surprised how much 40 pounds what a difference that makes mine were certainly easier to lift than her lead plates but when a Latter-day Saint would lift my plates, I would then explain to them, because they would look at me like, well, that's not so bad. I says, yeah, but the problem is mine are sheet metal. If they were gold, you would have to add another stack, the same size that you just lifted, and then another half of a stack to get up to the weight gold would weigh if, in fact, Joseph Smith had plates that size. Hmm. Once I explain that to a Latter-day Saint, they start to see there's something very seriously wrong here. And usually what I would hear are the excuses. I would, I'll tell you one excuse that I probably heard more than any other one. Well, don't you know, Joseph Smith was a buff farm boy. Yeah. And, and they all use that phrase, buff farm boy. It was almost like that was a talking point maybe in the Mormon church. Um, but 
I don't care how buff he was, and he may have been for all I care, but there's no way a human being could do that. And I would often kid with him and say, you know, Arnold Schwarzenegger in his prime couldn't be able to repeat the things that Joseph Smith allegedly did according to the story as it's recorded in your manuals. And then, of course, when I showed him that that was just impossible for a human to do, then they would go and say, well, don't you believe in miracles? And I would say, well, of course, as a Christian, I believe in miracles, but the problem is there's no miracle in this story. We never hear Joseph Smith claiming he needed supernatural strength to lift the plates. Emma never claimed she needed supernatural plate, uh, strength to move the plates when she went about the Smith home doing her work, because according to the story, the plates were lying there in the Smith home, all covered up. Now, Emma said she never peeked, although she said she did run her fingers along the edge of the plates of whatever Joseph Smith had under there. He had something, that's for sure. But she said she ran her finger across the edge of the plates and they made a metallic sound. Well, most people probably wouldn't catch that, but if they made a metallic sound, then that means the plates that Joseph Smith had could not have been made of gold because gold would not make an, a metallic sound when in mm -hmm. that shape. The lead plates don't make a metallic sound. If you were to lift up those lead plates and then drop them, they thump, they don't, they don't click. So right there, we know that Smith was pulling a fast one. And the fact that he would lie to his own wife about it should be troubling for every Latter-day Saint, because I've said many, many times, a man who will lie to his wife will lie to anybody. So why would we expect that Joseph Smith is telling us the truth when he can't even tell the truth to his own wife? Not only about the plates, but later on about all the wives that he was marrying and telling his wife he wasn't marrying. Mm -hmm. uh, this guy does not have the credibility that we would expect. And he certainly doesn't meet the requirements of a true prophet of God, according to Deuteronomy. Uh, so we've got some real problems with Joseph Smith. But but this product here, what works out well with this is it's, it's a science project that we can walk the Latter-day Saint through. And many times when I would go down to, to Manti with my replica plates, I would often speak to more young people. It seemed like the adults didn't really want to engage me, but I would get a lot of high school age kids. And maybe the reason why they found what I was doing to be intriguing is because they knew they were going on a mission soon. And I would sometimes ask them, are you going on a mission? And they would say, oh yeah, and they're all proud and everything that they're going on a mission. I say, well, pretend that you knocked on my door and I asked you a question about the gold plates what would you say to me? What would you say to try and convince me? And this is how I would kind of get the, the conversation started there. Mm -hmm. And of course they would lift them. They would see that they were heavy. Then I would go through the whole story. If they weren't familiar with how Joseph Smith went out into the woods and the plates were buried in the ground in a stone box and he went out there and took the plates out of the stone box. And for some reason, and I still don't know the reason for this, yeah. he puts them in a hollow log. Now. That seems so strange to me because they seem to have been safe for so many years in the stone box. Why would he take them out of the stone box and put them in a hollow log? It seems like they're more vulnerable now than they were before. Smith doesn't give us the reason. At least I've never read a reason uh, from him or anyone else as to why he did that. But okay, he does it. 
But then he goes back to get them. And according to the story in their own man in their own manuals, he takes the plates and he, he takes them out of the hollow log. He wraps them in a linen frock or a linen shirt of some sort. And mm. he tucks them under his arm and he heads for home. Now, according to his mother, home was about three miles away. And so you have to imagine that Joseph Smith is carrying these plates with one arm. They're under his arm. Now, when you lift even my sheet metal plates, putting 80 pounds that size under your arm is a very difficult thing to do. Oh, yeah. I mean, it can be done, but you're not walking three miles with those, and you're certainly not going to jump over any log, and you're not going to win any fights carrying those either. <laughs> and so this is the story that I'm trying to recreate. And I'm telling the Latter-day Saint, I said, imagine this is like a science project. And of course, for something to be truly scientific, to, to practice the, you know, what science really is, you have to observe and you have to repeat. And so, okay, we're observing. Here we have some replica plates. Now we're going to repeat the story or at least see if we can repeat the story. And of course, when I go through how the story is recounted in church manuals, there's no way that a person can do this. Hmm. Unless, of course, you fall back to the miracle theory. And I, I often had to tell Latter-day Saints, you know what one of the strongest arguments against the miracle theory is? And they would look at me puzzled. And by this time, they're probably afraid to answer because they know I'm probably laying a sanctified trap for them. But I say the strongest argument against the miracle theory are your scholars at Brigham Young University. And they would look at me all puzzled. And I'd say, well, let me explain why. A lot of your church apologists are professors at BYU. And I would say, I don't know one professor at BYU that uses the miracle theory to try to justify this story. In fact, what they do is they try very hard to get the weight of the plates down to a manageable level. Hmm. How do they do this? Well, the first thing they do is they change the metal content. Now mm -hmm. the plates go from being gold and they'll say, well, they weren't really gold. They were an alloy that maybe had some gold, <laughs> but they were also another, another, al uh, another metal, perhaps copper, and the metal of choice is usually a Central American alloy called tumbaga. Hmm. Now, this theory was advanced by a Mormon metallurgist by the name of Reed Putnam. He assumed that the plates were made of tumbaga. And the Mormon apologists seemed to like his, his uh, arguments. I, I think they're horrible, personally. I mean, there's so many assumptions he has to make to make this theory work. But the reason why they latch onto it is because Putnam thinks that he can get the weight of the plates down to 53 pounds. But the way he does it is he changes the metal from gold to tumbaga. Mm -hmm. He puts the least amount of gold in the alloy to make it as light as possible. But you have to have so much gold because even Putnam admits that if you don't have enough gold in this alloy, you're going to get electrolysis over so many years and the plates will start to disintegrate. Hmm. Kind of like when you look at pipes in an old house in the hot water side where it's all green 
Or mm -hmm. for that matter, look at the Statue of Liberty, the oxidation there. That Well, that's decomposing is what it is. Mm -hmm. And he admits that that would happen with the plates to where after all the many years that they were buried in the ground, this oxidation, as he calls it, would eventually make it impossible to read the plates, much less turn the pages if they were even still able to turn pages at all. Now, this is all theory because yeah. they've never replicated any old Tambaga plates to make, you know, and had them buried for that long that they could actually test the theory. But this is all on paper, but this is what he's admitting. And a lot of scholars have latched on to that. Why? Because they think 53 pounds now makes it something that Joseph Smith could carry for three miles and jump over logs and fight off attackers. And Emma, you know, could have moved them around in the home and so forth. Mm -hmm. Well, to, to show that that's not true, I often had with me down in Manti a set of plates that were 53 pounds. <laughs> I was just anticipating this argument. Now, I was surprised that many Latter-day Saints were not really familiar with Putnam's argument, and I had very few ever try to use the argument that the plates were only about 50 pounds. Sometimes they would say, oh, they were only about 30 pounds, and I'd ask them, where'd you get that? And, you know, because that's ridiculous. So you, you can't get them that light unless they're made maybe of aluminum. You know, and they didn't have aluminum back then, you know, and mm -hmm. I don't think I don't think Moroni had aluminum plates. He said <laughs> to Joseph Smith I, that they were plates of gold. He didn't mm. say an alloy. He didn't say Tumbaga. He said plates of gold. Yeah. And but, that's the and that's a question that I was going to ask, because why would this theory of Tumbaga plates or any other metal even come into question? Because what I heard is that they were gold. But now I also hear sometimes that they had the appearance of gold or instead of gold, yes. they're golden plates. So are you yes. able to elaborate on that? Like where, sure. where, where are they pulling sure. that from? Oh, yeah. Where they get the argument that they had the appearance of gold, they get that from Joseph Smith. Because Joseph Smith said that when he was describing the plates, that they had the appearance of gold. And I just merely respond to that. They say, well, what do you think gold has the appearance of? Gold? <laughs> You know, I yeah. mean, that's not difficult, mm -hmm. but I go back to, well, okay, Joseph Smith had said they had the appearance of gold. What did the angels say? What did Moroni say? If Moroni was a real person and this story is to believe, what did Moroni tell Joseph Smith? And I have to point out sometimes that he said, according to Joseph Smith's own testimony, that the plates were made of gold. Now, you would think that if Moroni was a real person, and the story about the plates was accurate as it's handed down to members of the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints, Moroni was really the last to handle the plates, according to the Book of Mormon story. He gets them from his father, Mormon, and then he makes some more additions to the plates. He can't make too many because what he says is he's run out of gold. He's run out of plates. We don't have any more ore, he says. But he's the last one to handle it. Now, wouldn't you think that if Moroni is the last one to handle the plates, and he's actually written on the plates himself, that he would probably know what metal they were made of? And I mean, when they go to Joseph Smith saying they have the appearance of gold, I think that story carries a lot less weight than what Moroni actually said. Yeah. And besides, Joseph Smith isn't denying that they were made of gold. He just said they had the appearance of gold. 
Mm-hmm. Well, gold has the appearance of gold for Pete's sake. So what's the big deal here? But you see, the reason why they have to do that, Cole, is because they know gold would be too heavy. Mm. The story would not make sense. And they're not about to use the argument that he needed a miracle because they know that that's not a part of the story. They're going to have to do a little bit of their own eisegesis and read into the story facts that aren't there. And it's interesting, when I'm talking to Latter-day Saints about this, and they're going off on all these tangents of what the plates could have been made of and the gap in between the plates, I says, do you know? Do you see what you're doing here? I, I try to stop them and get them to start thinking about what they're doing. Mm-hmm. I'm recounting the story as it's written in your manuals that are put out by your church's correlation department. I'm sticking to the story as it reads in your texts. And yet, listen to yourself. You're going off in all these tangents, making up all these facts that aren't there, which tells Mm. me you don't believe the story any more than I do. Because you have to make up facts to make it work for you. I just flat out go by the story as it's told, and I don't believe it anyway. But they seem to be having a problem with it as well. And I'll tell you, this got a lot of Latter-day Saints to think. I had a lot of very good conversations with Latter-day Saints just by letting them see why I was having a difficulty believing this story. Now, Mm -hmm. this is what's funny. I remember having a conversation with a man down there, very nice guy. In fact, most of the people, you know, you talk to them, the the Latter-day Saint people are very nice people. And and, uh, I enjoy Mm -hmm. talking to them. I've rarely had bad experiences talking with with Latter-day Saints. Of course, over the years, certainly I've had some. But I remember this one guy telling me, like, well, just forget all that, Bill, and just pray Moroni's prayer. Okay, mm-hmm. Moroni's prayer, Moroni 10 for it. You know, if you have a sincere heart, real intent, having faith mm-hmm. in Christ, he'll manifest the truthfulness of these things unto you. Yeah. And I says, you know, the problem with that is, is if these plates really didn't exist, there is no Moroni's prayer. Mm-hmm. There is no Moroni. There is mm-hmm. no Book of Mormon. Yeah. See, a lot hinges on this story that Brigham Young told. And uh, there's there's a comment that was made by uh, Jeffrey Holland, if I could read it for you. Yep. This is in a book he wrote called Christ in the New Covenant. Now, Jeffrey R. Holland currently serves as an apostle in the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints. Mm-hmm. But this is what he said on page 345 of his book, Christ in the New Covenant. He said, to consider that everything of saving significance in the church stands or falls on the truthfulness of the Book of Mormon, and by implication, the prophet Joseph Smith's account of how it came forth is as sobering as it is true. It is a sudden death proposition. Either the Book of Mormon is what the prophet Joseph said it is, or this church and its founder are false. Mm. A deception from the first instance onward. Now, I don't know if Jeffrey Holland realized what he did in making that uh, statement, but what he's also telling us is if the Book of Mormon is not what 
it claims to be or what Joseph Smith said about it, not only is his church and founder false, but Jeffrey Holland, you're false also. Mm. You are a false apostle because in this quote alone, you're pushing a narrative that can't possibly be true. And this becomes very serious. And, and this is why I think using the Book of Mormon in this way becomes very effective because there's basically two pillars of Mormonism that if you can get the Latter-day Saint to see that those two pillars are crumbled, and one of them being the Book of Mormon, the other, of course, is the first vision account where Joseph Smith claimed he was visited by God the Father and Jesus. If you mm -hmm. can get a Mormon to realize that those two stories, one or both of those stories, is not true, they're probably going to leave the church. Mm -hmm. And unfortunately, many of them may drift off into atheism. And this is why I often encourage Christians, when you're talking to Latter-day Saints about this, don't just be knocking the props out from under the, underneath their Mormonism. You better yeah. give them something to take its place. Mm -hmm. And this is where we need to inject why we have something better. We have the Word of God, which speaks of real people, real places, real events. Now, I can't prove the spiritual message to anybody. Only the Holy Spirit can do that. Mm -hmm. But at least we can show them that this is a book that's worthy of our trust. Now, read it, go through it. You'll see the historical evidences, the archaeological evidence. We have enough evidence to show that many of the people that it mentions were real people. Have has every person mentioned in the Bible? Has it been evidence to, to prove that they existed? No, of course not. Has mm. every place been found? No, of course not. One of the reasons being is there's just not that many archaeologists out there. But mm -hmm. the fact is, personally for me, and this is what really turned me towards the Bible, I, I saw, even in my remedial understanding of it, that there was enough truth there that I could empirically prove or disprove, that it gave me the trust to move on to the spiritual message that it contained. The Book yeah. of Mormon does not offer us that luxury. Mm. You, you jump into this with a blind faith, believing only one man, and that's Joseph Smith. And mm -hmm. Joseph Smith is not trustworthy. And I, that's where I'm trying to go with this without saying something like that, because if I said that to them in the way I just said it, they would turn me off in a heartbeat. Mm -hmm. And so you have to be very careful how you get your information across, because I want to keep that conversation going on as long as I can. And I'll never forget having a conversation with two LDS women down on the streets of Manti years ago. And it was going very well. You know, they were they were, you know, double teaming me, which is fine. You know, I didn't mind that at all. But. Something was said, and I thought this would be a real good segue to bring up something about Joseph Smith. And as soon as I mentioned Joseph Smith's name, I'll never forget, this one woman looked at me, held her finger up in the air, and said, don't you say anything bad about Joseph Smith or this conversation's over. Hmm. Uh, so it's a touchy subject with them. So I often tell people, yeah, I think we have to get to the subject of Joseph Smith at some point, but it may not be something you want to say right up front. Mm -hmm. At least using the gold plate story, they all know Joseph Smith brought this story forth. I'm just having them try to convince me that I should believe it. And, yeah. And so I'm letting, I'm giving them the opportunity to prove their case with me. 
And I, I tell them, look, I've had missionaries come to my house. They talk about the Book of Mormon. They always want me to pray about it. And I says, mm -hmm. look, I've never prayed about the Book of Mormon the way they've always asked me to. I said, I don't see any biblical justification for praying in that manner over religious books. Obviously, mm. as Latter-day Saints, they don't really either because they don't pray over the Quran. They don't pray over other religious books. It's only the mm. Book of Mormon that they'll do that. I say, no, I go by what the Bible says. And it says to test the spirits to see whether they are of God, because many false prophets have gone out into the world. So mm. I'm doing what the Bible says. I'm examining what the Book of Mormon has to say, and if history doesn't validate it, that there's no such people as Lamanites or Nephites, as they're described, or Jaredites, as they're described in the Book of Mormon, then I don't think it would be safe to believe something like that. And mm -hmm. certainly to pray over something like that, to me, is, is actually sacrilegious. I, and I've, I've had Latter-day Saints say, well, do you don't believe in prayer? I go, no, it's just the opposite. Prayer to me is so sacred, I will not abuse it. And I really do think praying over whether or not the Book of Mormon is true, I think that's abuse. Mm. In fact, let, let's be honest, Cole, wouldn't you think it's lazy? Mm. I, I'm not going to read it. Well, I'm going to peruse it just to say I read it, but I'm not going to really study this. I'm not going to really examine all the truth claims that are between these two covers. I'm just going to pray about it. Well, you're being lazy. I never mm. did that with the Bible. You know, mm -hmm. come on, <laughs> look at it, examine yeah. it, put it to the test. But I find that when I tell Latter-day Saints that that's what I did, they look at me almost in horror that I would doubt them like that. But no, mm. I am a, I'm a very skeptical person. <laughs> Yeah. And, and it even seems like uh, for me in my past experience talking to some Latter-day Saints, I will say, well, let's say I did pray about it and let's say I go forward and do that. And then I come back to you and then I say, I've prayed about it. And then I've gotten a confirmation that it's not true. Would that testimony be enough for you to come to my church or for you to convert to my religion? And obviously they say no. So if my testimony to the Book of Mormon, praying about it and seeing if it's true, if that isn't enough, then why would you think your testimony of the same would do the same, would do that for me? And that, that's where it kind of gets into the study, like you just said. And Bill, I have uh, two more points for you, kind of, you know, that we can expand on as we go through this. And one would be, you mentioned the comment about, you know, this writing or dying on Joseph Smith's word. Now, mm -hmm. the Latter-day Saint Church claims that there were these witnesses to the gold plates. And I've often heard the argument that just in the same way that there were eyewitnesses to Jesus in the New Testament, there are eyewitnesses to this account and of these gold plates. Um, they, they saw them with their eyes and all these kinds of things. So we, I've had a Latter-day Saint tell me that it's, it's equal evidence that if, if you're going to believe the resurrection, you ought to also believe this through the eyewitness accounts we have of the gold plates. Do you have any thoughts on that? Oh, absolutely. I, I, I hear this being brought up a lot. And I think over the years that a lot of the Mormon apologists have kind of refined their argument to, to word it the way you just did. But the, the problem that the Latter-day Saint has is that even some of their own historians, and I'm thinking one in particular, Marvin Hill, very well-respected LDS historian, he admits that there's enough evidence out there that the witnesses never really saw tangible plates anyway. 
And that's damning when you think about it, because wow. most Latter-day Saints want to believe or have been led to believe that the plates were tangible, that they were mm -hmm. real plates. Joseph Smith carried something around wrapped up in a pillowcase. And even his own wife felt that they were plates because she ran her finger across the edge and it made a metallic sound. So he was certainly putting on some kind of ruse to convince people that he had something tangible. But when you read the story of, let's, let's just take the three witnesses, first of all. Now, there were 11 witnesses total. There were three witnesses, and then there were later on eight more witnesses. Now, I might okay. mention that the eight more were pretty much all related together, uh, re related to each other in some way, okay? So like the part of the Smith family or the Page family or whatever. Hmm. But when we go to the three witnesses and their name and testimony, just like the eight witnesses, is in the front of every edition of the Book of Mormon. And the three witnesses, of course, would be uh, Martin Harris, uh, Oliver Cowdery, and uh, I'm blanking out here. I should know this. <laughs> How embarrassing. Um, Oliver Cowdery, David Whitmer, and Martin Harris. They're the three witnesses, all right? They wanted to see the plates because it says in the Book of Mormon that God would have somebody prepared that we're actually going to see the plates. And Joseph Smith felt that maybe these three guys are going to be the guys, so they pray about it. Now, the story is in the history of the church. Now, I'm talking about the documentary history of the church. That's the seven-volume set, what many call the blue set, because the hard copy had blue covers on them. Okay. In, in volume one of the documentary history of the church, it, it goes on to explain how, this, how they came about to see them. Let me just read a portion for you. On page 52, this is chapter 6 in volume 1 of History of the Church. In the course of the work of translation, we ascertain that three special witnesses were to be provided by the Lord to whom he would grant that they should see the plates from which this work, the Book of Mormon, should be translated, and that these witnesses should bear record of the same as will be found recorded in the Book of Mormon page 581 okay so the story goes that the time came that they were going to be allowed to actually see these plates and so it mentions on page 53 you have oliver cowdery david whitmer and the aforementioned martin harris and it says that they would inquire after our uh, that they would have me inquire of the lord to know if they might not obtain of him the privilege to be these three special witnesses and finally they became so very solicitous and urged me so much to inquire that at length i complied and through the urim and thummim now what is the urim and thummim well it depends there's a there's contradictory stories on this but could very well be the seer, the seer stone that Joseph Smith found while digging a well with his brother Hiram and the same rock that he was using to quote unquote translate the gold plates into the Book of Mormon. So he would put this rock into a hat. He would draw the hat closely around his face to exclude the light. Hmm. And Smith, or I should say, uh, it was it was said of uh, 
when he did that, that a spiritual light would shine and these characters would appear and he would read off the characters to his scribe, the scribe would read it back and then it would go on to the next set of characters. What do we learn from this? Well, from that alone, we learn that Joseph Smith isn't looking at the plates when he's doing his so-called translation. Now, it could also be that it's a reference to the stones that were buried with the plates that were set in a frame that looked somewhat like spectacles or glasses. And he would look through these stones mm -hmm. on his face and somehow looking at the plates, the reformed Egyptian language, which whatever that is, nobody seems to know. But anyway, the reformed Egyptian language would miraculously turn into English so that Joseph Smith could in fact read it. But anyway, Joseph Smith has to go to some outside source to get the answer as to whether or not these three men are going to be able to see the place. Now, on page 54, we start getting into how this happened. He's, it says, not many days after the above commandment was given, we four, that would be Martin Harris, David Whitmer, Oliver Cowdery, and myself, Joseph Smith, because it's, it's written in first person like this, he said, we agreed to retire into the woods and try to obtain by fervent and humble prayer the fulfillment of the promises given in the above revelation that they should have a view of the plates. Now, why is it that most Latter-day Saints don't catch this? Joseph Smith is translating the plates inside this farmhouse, okay? Why are they going outside? Why not go into the farmhouse where he was doing the translating? You would think that they would be there. Mm. But no, they go outside. They retire into the woods. And now what do they do? They pray by fervent and humble prayer to be able to have a view of the plates. Well, wait a minute. Why do you have to pray to see real tangible plates. And I've often asked Latter-day Saints that. I said, now, these men went out to pray to see the plates. Does that not seem strange to you? And they look at me like, well, why? And I said, well, did you have to pray to see my plates? And they go, no. I said, you know why? And they look at me like, okay, why? And I say, because mine are real. Hmm. Mine are real. It's real metal. Smith is pulling one on these guys. He's going to get them uh, all whipped up into some kind of spiritual frenzy and hope that they're going to hallucinate to some point. I don't know if that would be because hallucinations usually don't work with more than one person like that. Mm -hmm. But there could have been this attitude that they believe so much that Joseph Smith was a prophet of God that they certainly didn't want to let him down and probably in their own minds didn't seem to really want to let God down. But then there's another there's another fact that plays into this. These guys actually believed in having spirit, this, this special sight or second sight, they called it, where you could actually see things that weren't there, but you believed they were there. Now, in mm. a 21st century setting, we look at that as crazy, but that was not so crazy back in the time of Joseph Smith. So when they say they saw the plates, that's probably how they saw them. But the fact is, they weren't looking at tangible plates. And I'll show you as I go on in this account, it says as much. So, so they go out to pray. And on page 54, it says, we did at this first trial, however, um, 
We did not at this first trial, however, obtain any answer or manifestation of divine favor in our behalf. We again observed the same order of prayer, each calling on and praying fervently to God in rotation, but with the same result as before. So they're out there praying and nothing's happening. Hmm. Upon this, it says, our second failure, Martin Harris proposed that he should withdraw himself from us, believing as he expressed himself that his presence was the cause of our not obtaining what we wished for. He accordingly withdrew from us and we knelt down again and had not been many minutes engaged in prayer when presently we beheld a light above us in the air of exceeding brightness and behold, an angel stood before us in his hands he held the plates which we had been praying for these to have a view of. Okay, so this angel's holding the plates. Huh. So that would mean the plates are no longer in the building where Joseph Smith was translating the plates in the first place. We would mm. assume somehow that angel got the plates out of that building and brought them out with him. Now, we don't read of any details such as this, but I'm just trying to take what I'm being told and try to figure this out in somewhat of a logical manner. But they see these plates. Now, when you read it like that, especially when it says that the angel turned over the leaves one by one that, so that we could see them and discern the engravings thereon distinctly, he then addressed himself to David Whitmer and said, David, Blessed is the Lord and he that keeps his commandments. When immediately afterwards we heard a voice from out of the bright light above us saying, these plates have been revealed by the power of God and they have been translated by the power of God. The translation of them which you have seen is correct and I command you to bear record of what you now see and hear. Okay, so the angel says that they were translated correctly. And it was translated by the gift and power of God. If that's true, why has the church been continually revising the Book of Mormon ever since the 1830 edition came out? Hmm. There's a lot of differences. Now, I admit most of them are probably not all that important punctuation, spelling changes, but there are textual changes to the modern Book of Mormon. Yeah. that were not in the 1830 edition but yet the angel says here that the one that what they are looking at the plates that the translation is correct that translation would ultimately end up being the very first edition or the 1830 edition but yet it would go through a number of revisions down to our present day so is a Mormon really telling us the truth when they say that the book that they're holding in their hand was translated by the gift and power of God and was an accurate translation? Because if it is, then we have to assume that the one that the angel was talking about on page 55 of the uh, volume one of the history of the church could not have been. See, there's a lot of problems here. Now, now here's where we get to, to specifically answer the question about these three witnesses seeing the plates. Right after that paragraph, Joseph Smith says, I now left David and Oliver and went in pursuit of Martin Harris, whom I found at a considerable distance, fervently engaged in prayer. He soon told me, however, that he had not yet prevailed with the Lord and earnestly requested me to join him in prayer, that he also might realize the same blessings which we had just received. 
We accordingly joined in prayer and ultimately obtained our desires for before we had yet finished, get this, the same vision was opened to our view. At least it was again opened to me. The same vision. Notice he says, we're not looking at actual plates. Hmm. What we're seeing is in a vision. Mm -hmm. Well, and Smith says, at least as it was open, uh, as it was again open to me. Remember, he already had seen them earlier when he was with the other two. Yeah, it's like so synonymous. The same way, the same thing. Yeah, so the way he's seeing them now is the way they saw them before. And Marvin Hill admits they saw them in a vision, and he says there's enough evidence to show that that was the case even with the eight witnesses, even though they all say they saw the plates. Well, they saw them in vision. Okay, I'll go with that if that's what they want to say. I wasn't there. I can't say otherwise. But what it what it tells me, though, is they did not see tangible plates. But yet every Latter-day Saint that I talked to believes that he had tangible plates and that the witnesses saw tangible plates. Doesn't sound like it, according to page 55 in the documentary History of the Church. And it says the same vision was open to our view. I think that undermines their theory here that, well, they saw them. You got to go with what they say they saw. Do we really? Mm -hmm. Are we sure we want to do that? Because mm -hmm. uh, it doesn't seem to go along with the way most Latter-day Saints believe. Yeah. And it's interesting that you say even, you know, Latter-day Saint historians or scholars will also will even concede that point that it was kind of this um, visionary experience. Yeah. And, and, and why would those scholars want to lie about this? I mean, these people believe the story. They want to believe it. It's just I think they're trying to believe it as accurately as accurately as they possibly can. The problem is when you do that, you start to see cracks. And uh, maybe the cracks aren't big enough for them at this time to abandon their faith entirely. But I'll tell you, I have talked to a lot of Latter-day Saints that have done a lot of study in their faith, and maybe they're not on the scholarly level, but they'll admit to me there are a lot of problems in Mormon history that they can't explain. And of course, then they'll give you an answer. Well, there's an answer out there. I just don't know what it is, but God knows and you know, all that kind of stuff. Uh, almost trying to convince themselves that these problems are not all that serious. But I would argue, according to what Jeffrey R. Holland says, if these plates aren't what Joseph Smith claimed them to be, and if that story, as he tells it, wasn't true, then the Book of Mormon and Joseph Smith and the church are false and a deception from the first instance onward. Mm -hmm. And so even thinking about that, you know, so you, Bill, you, you don't believe the Book of Mormon, but you believe the Bible. And so my, my second point uh, or my second question that I had was I found this quote from the Friend magazine that the Latter-day Saint Church publishes. Um, it, yeah, that's for it, kids. Yeah, the, yeah, the, yeah. The friend is for for small children. Yeah, yeah. My my fiance, her family went because she grew up Latter Day Saint, and so every every month her mom would get it for her, and she would read it, and 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 she. When I found this quote the other day, she was like, oh my gosh, I totally forgot about the friend. I read that all the time. But <laughs> I found a quote in there from July 2015, and I kind of wanted to 
read this so that we could talk about this in relation to the Bible, right? So, uh, you know, the article of faith, the, the eighth one says for the Latter-day Saint Church that they believe the Bible as far as it is translated correctly. And then in this, they elaborate on it um, pretty simply, you know, since this is given for children. And so I, I think it's a good quote to read so we can get a simple kind of explanation for what this means. They say, when people translated it, the Bible, they changed or left out some important parts. That's why we believe the Bible is the word of God, except for any errors or missing parts. Now, as a Christian, I would say, I, you know, I believe the Bible as far as it's translated correctly also. Now, the second right. half of the quote goes to say, the Book of Mormon also contains teachings of prophets. Joseph Smith translated it with Heavenly Father's help, so nothing was changed or left out. So that's the quote that I found. Do you have any thoughts on that in relation to the Bible and in relation to uh, the Book of Mormon, where it says, you know, nothing was changed or left out or anything like that? You right. kind of touched on that. So, yeah, no, notice what they're doing. Now, these kids wouldn't understand this because they're probably too young to understand the difference between transmission and translation. A lot of adults don't think about this, but when Article 8 says that they believe the Book of Mormon to be the Word of God, or the Bible to be the Word of God as far as it's translated correctly, I, I think Joseph Smith was using the wrong word when he wrote that. And I think I can point to some scholars in the LDS Church to back me up on that, because Really, I think what he's implying is they believe the Bible to be the Word of God as far as it was transmitted correctly, because they believe that over the years, as this portion that you just read from the Friend magazine, that sounds like a transmission problem, not a translation problem. Mm -hmm. Some parts were left out or maybe purposely changed or accidentally changed and then carried on. And so the transmission, as it comes down to our present day, even if it was a good translation, it would only be a good translation of a bad transmission. And this is how the LDS Church poisons the well in the minds of young members to not really put their trust in the Bible. In other words, what they're telling these kids is, you can't really trust the Bible, but you can trust the church when we tell you what the Bible says or doesn't say. In other mm -hmm. words, they're putting their trust in this organization. And because they love the leaders of the church, they love their family members that love the leaders of the church. They trust their family members. They trust their friends. You can understand why it would be easy for them to just go along with the crowd and hope that what these guys are telling them is accurate. But the problem is it's not accurate. What they're saying is nonsense. In fact, you know, the study of textual criticism helps us to know what the originals said, even though we don't have the original manuscripts. Bible scholars will tell you we don't need the we don't need the original manuscripts. We have enough copies of the text that we can piece together and know what the text was saying in the original. And where there's some difficulties, usually those difficulties are in things that are not doctrinal and are not really salvific in the least. But lots of Latter-day Saints don't take the time to, to study this. It's much easier, and maybe I, I should be so blunt as to go back and say it's much lazier to believe what you're being told than to check it out yourself. 
there's volumes written on the subject of how our Bible came to be. You don't have to be a scholar to read a lot of these books. Many of them are written on a lay level because they want lay members in the Christian church to know how our Bible came about, to have a confidence in what the Word has to say. But you see, once a Latter-day Saint has confidence in the Bible, you're going to run into some serious contradictions here. Now, who is he supposed to side with? What the Bible is saying or what Joseph Smith is saying? Or what the Book of Mormon is saying? There becomes the difficulty. And naturally, you have to be loyal to the church if you want to be a good Latter-day Saint. But if you're going to be loyal to the Bible, there's going to be some conflict there. And I really believe those Latter-day Saints that do have a loyalty to the Bible, they end up finding their way out of the Mormon church. I know because I've talked to many of them that have done just that. They didn't want to lose their faith in Christ, and they went to the Bible, and they realized, wow, the Jesus I read about in the New Testament doesn't sound like the Jesus I was raised on. I remember having a, a former Mormon missionary at the Utah Lighthouse Bookstore he came into the store, and, and I often do, I'll, I'll ask him if, if they have an LDS background, and, and this guy said he did. He said he was a missionary, and I says, oh, really? Where did you serve? And so we got into a little bit of small talk, and I says, well, what started your journey out of the church? He says, well, our, my mission president wanted us to read the New Testament, which, okay, uh, that's not unusual, really, because yeah. Latter-day Saints are encouraged to read the New Testament. He said... But I read it, and for the first time as he read it, he realized this was not his Jesus. There was a difference here. <laughs> and that's what led him out of the church. Wow. He saw that the, the biblical stories, the New Testament stories and the Gospels and what Jesus said, and obviously I think you probably have to add what Paul also said in his epistles and, and the other epistles as well, showed him that what his church was telling him was not what was in the New Testament. It conflicted with the New Testament. Now, fortunately, I have to believe that this young guy had a love for Jesus. Now, I know we could always talk about, well, what Jesus did he have a love for? And yes, that should be a conversation at some point. Hmm. But this guy had a belief in Jesus, and he realized that what the Bible was saying did not reflect the Jesus he believed in. And that's what led him out of the church. Now, that story is not totally unusual. I've heard of many Latter-day Saints say things similar to that. So I know some Christians think, well, should we even bring up what the Bible says if they only trust it, as it says in Article 8? And I say, absolutely, because if nothing else, it shows you trust it. And I hope that in the conversation, you can explain why you trust it. And I think this gives us a great opportunity to talk about why we believe the Bible. And uh, and I think that is a convincing argument to many Latter-day Saints who are not at the point where they're just going to abandon all faith, as unfortunately so many ex-Mormons have, but they do want to hold on to their belief of Jesus. Now, again, whatever it is at that time, God will all work that out. I'm sure he will. But, but still, uh, this is where I think we need to go with our conversation. We need to show that we definitely do have a trust in the Bible. We do believe it to be true, and here is why. And if a Christian listening to this isn't quite confident as to explain the why, 
then let me strongly encourage you to find out the why so you can relate this to an individual. Because once you find out the why, yeah. it works not only with Mormons, it works with Jehovah's Witnesses, it works even sometimes with atheists uh, or a person of other religious backgrounds. I mm -hmm. think we need to have those kind of answers. And I think we should try to give the best answer we possibly can as to why we believe the Bible is the word of God. Yeah, that's great. And so I guess the last point we can have for this interview is the second half of this quote that says, Joseph Smith translated the Book of Mormon with Heavenly Father's help, so nothing was changed or left out. Now, I also read in the LDS newsroom in their article, it's called Understanding of the Process of the Publication of the Book of Mormon. They admit that it has had, since its first publication, almost 4,000 changes. So yeah. do you think this is reconcilable or how, how in one, you know, out, out, out of one side of their mouth, they're able to say it's had 4,000 changes almost, and then it seems like in another that it hasn't been changed at all? Yeah, I, I think, of course, uh, the, what we're seeing here is how the Book of Mormon is portrayed to different audiences. Can you imagine the damage it would cause to tell a young child reading an article in the Friend magazine that, yeah, the Book of Mormon seen 4,000 changes. <laughs> mm -hmm. That would be devastating to them. How would you explain that to them in words that they could comprehend? Um, hopefully, I think uh, they, they're hoping that older adults can grasp this, although I find it's difficult for some Latter-day Saint to, uh, to, Saints to grasp that because as a child, they were told it had no changes. That's one reason why I think the Tanner's book, 3,913 Changes to the Book of Mormon, was so effective. You could open that book and you could see where all the changes were made, at least in a 1964 edition, because that's about the time when the Tanners did that. Can you imagine doing that all by hand without the aid of computers yeah, or wow. the internet? I mean, it was amazing the research that they did. And But when you open it up, and yes, as I said before, a lot of it is is stuff that I wouldn't even take all that seriously. You know, um, some of the wording is a little awkward, big deal. But when you add text to it, then you have to ask yourself, wait a minute. When Joseph Smith is reading the characters off of the rock, wouldn't the characters say something that would match this? If it was really done that way, why does it not now match that? In other words, we would have to assume that what he's reading off the rock is to be what the Book of Mormon is supposed to be. It's supposed to be what mm -hmm. the angel allegedly told, you know, Joseph Smith and the two witnesses at that time, that this was translated by the gift and power of God. It's translated correctly. Then it should read the same. Okay, do the spelling corrections. I don't have a problem with that. Put a comma where you think it should be. But when yeah. you put the word not in the sentence, you've just changed the meaning completely. Was that word not something that Joseph Smith read off of the seer stone? Mm -hmm. Because if he didn't read that word not, that word should not be there. Mm -hmm. And, and that's the problem that I have in trying to get a Latter-day Saint to see that. 
I don't want to come off as gullible. And, and I'm, I'm trying in a kind way to, to let the Latter-day Saint know you've been played. You've been played because you did not take the time to look closely at what you think the Holy Spirit told you was true. And see, that's the blasphemous notion of this. They are giving credence to the Holy Spirit or the Holy Ghost, as they would say, as telling them that this book was true when we know as Christians there is no way the Holy Spirit is going to confirm the Book of Mormon. That is not true. That cannot be the Holy Spirit that's confirming that to them. It's Mm -hmm. a spirit of some sort, perhaps, but it's not the Holy Spirit of the Bible. That is for sure. Mm -hmm. And even talking more or expanding on the translation, you even mentioned, you know, wouldn't it show up like it did in the hat? And so I just have two quotes here that I'd like to read very fast. So Martin Harris uh, comments on this, and we can you can find this in the Comprehensive History of the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints, and he talks about it. He says, by aid of Seerstone, sentences would appear and were read by the prophet, Joseph Smith, and written. When, he, when finished, he would say, written, and if correctly written, that sentence would disappear, but if not written correctly, it remained until corrected. So that the translation was just as it was engraved on the plates, precisely in the language then used. We also hear later in Oliver B. Huntington's journal, he is quoting Joseph F. Smith, uh, you know, passed away late uh, prophet. And he says, with more clarification on the topic, he says, and if there was a word wrongly written or even a letter incorrect, the writing on the stones would remain there. And so it kind of gives you, you know, if this was the the process and the power of God, I mean, that's a flawless, you would get a flawless translation from that. So then the Absolutely. question becomes, is do we, did, did they have the flawless translation and now the LDS church of today has changed that? Or was it not flawless at all in the first place? I think you raise an excellent point. And those quotations that you gave, uh, become a real problem for the thinking Latter-day Saint, because if they just do a cursory examination based on those two quotes as their guide, they're going to see that's just not how it is. Uh, uh, that the statement, what I mean is the statements are not uh, actually um, helping each other, okay? They're contradicting each other. And that becomes a problem for a lot of thinking Latter-day Saints. And so I, I agree totally. If we go by what is written down and we use their manuals and the statements of their past leaders as a guide, we're going to see that there's a lot of contradictions to this. And you have to ask yourself, do I really want to place my eternal destiny in the hands of someone like Joseph Smith that obviously says things that just are not true, that does things are certainly not biblical. And is that the kind of guy I want to model my life after and put my trust in? I, I've spoken to groups like like junior high groups. I've actually spoken to some uh, junior high age kids. And I say, how many 14-year-olds that are, are here? And of course, a bunch of the hands go up. I said, I want to look at the, I want you to look at those holding up their hands. Would you put your eternal life in their hands? And of course they all laugh. Well, why do they laugh? 
because they know how dangerous that is. You would never do something like that. Mm. But yet, isn't that kind of what we're doing when it comes to Joseph Smith? He was a young boy of a little over 14 when he claims to have this first vision. You really want to believe a kid like that? He's actually saying that he saw God the Father when the Bible itself says you can't see God and live to tell about it. And even mm-hmm. his own Joseph Smith translation says the same thing. Mm. In fact, it elaborates and makes it even stronger that you can never see God and live to tell about it. So if that's what Joseph Smith claimed he saw, how can he live to tell about it? Mm. It's not that difficult. It's not rocket science. And, uh, boy, I, my prayer is for Latter-day Saints that they just take the time to look at this closer And I know they look at a person like myself and even a a person like you, Cole, when we try to share our faith with the Latter-day Saints, that somehow we're doing it out of a spirit of animosity or even hatred. That's the big Mm. word now in our culture. Yeah. No, actually, we are their best friends. And I've told Latter-day Saints that. I'm not your enemy. You know, I I want only God's best for you. I think that's what true love really is, is wanting God's best for an individual, not only in this life, but the next. And so I'm willing to risk a friendship to tell them things that I've found to be true that go against the grain of what they've been told is true. Yeah, no, that's great, Bill. And and you kind of even touched on it. You know, the, the reason we do this and the reason we share our faith is because we believe just as strongly as some other Latter-day Saints in their own, their own faith, right? We believe what we have is to be the truth. And, um, you know, the point of came unto Christ is to show the differences and then just let the person look at it and say, and, and we just charge you to examine the evidence. And so, uh, yeah, yeah. Exactly and, right. and, yeah. And so, uh, before, uh, we get off, I, I first just want to thank you again, Bill, for just even just talking about the story, taking us through it very clearly, um, very concisely just to be able to touch on some points that maybe uh, I know my viewers uh, that are Christian uh, would immensely appreciate because they love getting to the nitty gritty. They love understanding even the minute details. And then even for maybe any future Latter-day Saints or questioning Latter-day Saints, they m- probably could have learned something that maybe they didn't even know about this. And so before I close us, um, Bill, where can people um, find more resources from you if they'd like it? Um, you know, what what can they do with that? Well, they can go to our website, mrm.org. It's mormonismresearchministry.org, mrm.org. And we have a lot of resources there. If they go to the drop-down menu, I think it says resources. There's a lot of articles there. Once they click on that, then the articles will show up on the left-hand side of the page. But we have a number of articles that deal with these issues. They're all broken down into various categories, such as, you know, the Godhead, Book of Mormon, Salvation, things like that. They're fully documented articles. We try very hard to always give our references. We try to find the easiest references that are out there for people to get a hold of. I I know sometimes when I was reading a lot of the books, when I was first studying this, a lot of the resources that they were citing were books that didn't even exist any longer and weren't available at the time because this is pre-internet. Now things have changed, but we try to to give the best references, the the most recent reference, especially if it's found in a church manual because those are all correlated. What I mean by that is a correlated manual has been approved by the first presidency to be what the church believes is true. So quoting from a church manual is always a good source. 
quoting something said in general conference is always a good source. And uh, those are the two main references that we like to go to if we can uh, and cite the most. And we do have a lot of citations in those two categories in, in a lot of our articles. But uh, our website is good. Also, they can go to our past uh, broadcast of Viewpoint on Mormonism is our daily radio show. And we have all the past shows that are there as well. And uh, Eric has taken the time to even categorize those radio shows. So if you're looking for a certain topic, there's a link that'll take you to those categories and you can see what we've talked about over the past many years. I think we did our first broadcast here in Utah, 2011. Uh, when I lived in California, we had a viewpoint on Mormonism. Eric and I did it, but it was a talk show format. Well, uh, and now we don't have the talk show format. It's just a 15 minute show, 14 minutes actually. Uh, but we, we try to pack a lot into that 14 minutes. And one of the best compliments we ever get from people who listen to the radio show is they say it's too short. That, that's a good compliment. <laughs> yeah, yeah, always. Well, thanks so much, Bill. I, I super appreciate it again. Uh, I, I hope to keep working out with you in the future. Thank you for all that you're doing for the body of Christ. and. Thank you for all that you're doing for Utah. And so uh, anybody who's listened, you can find us Came Unto Christ on Instagram at Came Unto Christ, Facebook Came Unto Christ. It's pretty much the same name all around. Um, so I just want to close with a final verse, and that will be Romans 6.23. For the wages of sin is death, but the free gift of God is eternal life in Christ Jesus our Lord. Thanks for listening.